everybody, and welcome to another episode of Spoofed, all things fraud and customer experience. I am your host, Jeff Kerchick, VP of Enterprise Sales for Nextcaller, leader for call center authentication and fraud prevention. I am really excited about today's guest, um, probably our most famous guest that we've had to date. His name is Brett Johnson. He's a former USA most wanted cyber criminal, and now he's p- playing for the good guys. He, uh, he became a, an informant, and he now runs his own consulting service called Anglerfish, where he advises companies and brands about how to protect themselves from fraud. Um, he's a keynote speaker. He's on podcasts. You probably see his name everywhere. In fact, if you work in the cybersecurity space and you have not heard of Brett Johnson, um, well, you gotta you gotta be doing more research because this is somebody that you need to know. So, Brett, I wanted to welcome you to the show and thank you. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing great. I don't know about me being called famous, though. I would, I guess, it's more notorious than anything. But you yeah. know, hey, I I appreciate the accolades. I really do. No, you have a you have an awesome background, and I, I I apologize because I know that you've done this dog and pony show probably hundreds of times, explaining your background and you know your whole story. But there are some people listening who might not know who you are. Maybe they only have half the story. So if you don't mind, like maybe just tell us a little bit about who you are, you know how you grew up and found your life in fraud, and then how you pivoted into turning it all into a good thing. Sure. So I guess we can give you the uh, the Cliff Notes version of that. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. Now, the way that I got that title was being convicted of 39 felonies, ended up on the United States Most Wanted list. I escaped from prison and I built the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor to today's Darknet, Darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern financial cybercrime channels still operate today. Uh, of course, I went to prison. <laughs> no surprise about that whatsoever. The 39 felonies that I was convicted of had to do with refining modern financial cybercrime as we now know it, from tax identity fraud, account takeovers, phishing, any type of credit card fraud, anything you could possibly imagine as far as stealing money online goes, I'm that guy. Of course, that's not where I began my life of crime. I actually began when I was 10 years old. Uh, (laughs) It still stuns me that that I started committing crime when I was 10. I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky is one of these areas like the Panhandle of Florida, parts of Louisiana or Texas, that if you're not fortunate enough to have a job, you may be involved in some, some sort of scam, hustle, fraud, whatever you want to call it. My mother was basically the captain of the entire fraud industry there. And I mean, when, when I say captain, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, she at one point, she steals a 108,000-pound Caterpillar D9 bulldozer. Another point, she takes a slip and fall in a convenience store. She tries to sue the owner. She had a neighbor she used to pimp out. That was my mom. My dad was a good man. His problem was is he loved my mom. So he was all about any any ideas she had, he co-signed off on. And she was an abusive parent. She used to bring men home in front of him. He'd beg her not to sit there and cry, and she'd do it anyway. She finally leaves him, and that's where I began my life of crime. Uh, she kept up her partying ways, and she was a negligent parent. She used to leave me at age 10, my sister age 9, Denise, she was 9, leave us at home for days at a time. So my first crime, Denise walks in one day and she's got this pack of pork chops in her hand. And I'm like, where'd you get that? And she's like, I stole them. And I was like, huh, 
show me how you did that. So she takes me over, shows me how she's shoplifting food. And I'm like, you know what? That's a damn fine idea. Let's do that. So we start stealing food. Then it becomes clothes and books, games, story, music, toys, all that stuff. Mom comes home, sees the stuff, asks where it came from. I stand up and try to tell her we found it. She's like, you didn't find that. Denise stands up. We stole it. My mom looks at my sister. Show me how you did that. And she joins us. And I'm in. When I say join us, it's kind of a friendly euphemism. It's basically she ran us as shoplifters with her and her mother to either steal stuff or to distract attention from them as they stole stuff. And that's the first crime I committed when I got older. Uh, Now, you know, a lot of people might think that I'm trying to blame my childhood on my choices as an adult. And that's not true. Um, My sister has the exact same upbringing that I had. Other than that one shoplifting experience, she grows off to be a great parent, great teacher. Me, I just kept on going. Uh, As I got older, I got more and more involved in the types of crime and fraud that my mother and that side of the family committed from charity fraud, benefit fraud, insurance fraud, stealing or illegally stealing coal, coal mining operations, uh, forging documents, any number of things you could possibly imagine. Broke off on my own or branched off on my own in the mid to late 90s and got involved in cybercrime and the, the... The result of that was the start of organized cybercrime as we know it today. Uh, I started two sites. There were three main sites. There was Carter Planet, Counterfeit Library, and Shadow Crew. The two that I started and ran were the two first ones. Those were Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew. Uh, Shadow Crew goes on to make the front cover of Forbes, August 2004, headline, Who's Stealing Your Identity? October 26, 2004, United States Secret Service arrested 33 people, six countries, six hours, I'm the guy who got away. They picked me up a few months later, the Secret Service did, and they gave me a job. And I am that idiot. Yep, that's me. I'm that idiot that decides to keep breaking the law from inside Secret Service offices for another 10 months with them in the same room as I am. They finally find out. I take off on a cross-country run, steal $600,000 in four months, wake up one morning, I am United States Most Wanted. So at that point, what do I do? I go to Disney World. Yeah, I go to Disney World. Lasted about six weeks. Secret Service, they finally found me, arrested me, sent me to prison, and then I escaped from prison. And that's that's the Cliff Notes version. But, uh, you know, I'm a very fortunate person. I, I did a lot of bad in my life. And these days, I'm able to use the knowledge that I acquired as a criminal to help protect people against the type of person that I used to be. So I'm, I don't know if I deserve the life that I have, but I damn sure am grateful for it. That's fantastic. I so before you know, there's a natural segue now, obviously, to understanding what you're doing today. But but before we get there, there's probably a million things you just said that may have so many more questions. Um, (laughs) So the the first thing that I have to ask is, you know, in some ways, I think that there's a certain amount of. you know, you're, I, I know I realize that you kind of you, you, you kind of beat yourself up there and said, oh, I don't know if I deserve the life I have after what I did. But I think uh, after listening to you explain what your life was like as a as a, you know, a young as a young kid, I think there's a certain amount of empathy that somebody might have for you. Um, you know, kind of being indoctrinated into that world at a young age, it's kind of hard. Uh, you you really only know what your surroundings are when when you're a kid growing up. And I wanted to give you an opportunity, Brett, actually to talk about what is like the ideal profile. Well, I wouldn't say ideal, but like what is the typical profile of a fraudster? Because I think a lot of people, when they think of somebody committing fraud, 
they associate it with somebody who must be shady or, you know, whatever, right? They have a certain image of somebody, maybe they're not well-educated or, or whatever. I, you know, I think it's an unfair assumption. And I think people who listen to you, you're this really outgoing, you know, affable guy. You're like, an, you know, nobody would, um, I think if somebody met you in person, they wouldn't assume that you had lived this life, right? If they didn't know who you were, I don't think that they would naturally assume that. And um, in my experience, it, it feels that the people who get into fraud are actually very bright people a lot of the time. They, if they were to go pick up and uh, work somewhere else, they would fit right in. They, they choose a life of crime because it pays and they're good at it. Um, so on that note, uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, your experience, y- you've interacted with a lot of people on the dark web, you have a good sense for what the profile is of the people who are perpetrating these crimes. Um, what is the profile of these, uh, folks who are committing fraud these days? Sure. So I, I guess the way to start out explaining that is to kind of reference how the media and how basically 7,000 security companies out there decide that they're going to view or portray a cyber criminal or a scammer or a fraudster. So, that, you know, when we're watching the news or when a security company is trying to sell a product, typically they have that person in a hoodie in the shadows. You know, they portray them as this upper tier computer hacker able to break into any type of computer system they want to at will. And they give this idea that these attackers, these cyber criminals, these fraudsters are almost untouchable. They're specters, they're ghosts. That's really not true. Those types of upper tier attackers are there. But their numbers are extremely small. The the big thing that people don't don't understand is you don't need a lot of those types of attackers because these days you have cybercrime as a service. So you only need just a very small amount of these upper tier hackers that are able to breach into systems or do at will whatever they want to. Then they sell it as services or whatever products are stolen, they sell those on the black market. The 99% of cyber criminals, of fraudsters, of scammers that are out there, they're not really sophisticated, but they are extremely good social engineers. So what does a scammer, a cyber criminal, a fraudster look like? I can tell you what they don't look like. They don't look like someone who's 400 pounds in their mom's basement, screaming, mom, bring me a sandwich. They've got the matrix background flowing in the back. They don't uh, work in the shadows. They don't have, you know, the, the dark eyes and the, the long goatee and, and all this other stuff that we would be scared of, that we would tend to associate with bad. The thing is, is that for scams to work, for frauds to work, for a social engineering attack to work, it's all about building trust. That's what it's all about. That's why, that's why the internet is successful. There's enough trust mechanisms there for the good guys and the bad guys that people can operate. So if you're a bad guy and you're looking to steal money from someone, it's important that they trust you at some level, either through fear, through building rapport, something like that. There has to be some sort of trust gauge there, some sort of trust layered. So what does a scammer look like? A scammer looks like someone who is they're supposed to look like if they're talking to you. You know, they, they fit in. They're a chameleon. They, they tend to, they don't want to stick out. They want to fit in with everyone else. They want to make sure that they look like your peers. All right. That's what it's all about. Um, the interesting thing that I've found, and I'm getting ready to launch a new podcast called The Unethical Life. And what it's going to do is it's talking to criminals, not just cyber criminals, but criminals at large. 
to discuss or try to find out what causes someone to veer toward that type of criminal activity. Because, you know, we just don't wake up of a day in our life and say, you know, I want to grow up to be a criminal. No, there's some sort of events that take place that lead you to that avenue. So I want to be examining that. But one of the things that, that I've noticed with almost all scammers and cyber criminals across the board is that as a child, we tend to develop a very good sense of or our ability of social engineering. We can read the adults in our environment because we typically have to in order to survive. And then we have to figure out as children how to manipulate these adults in order to survive. So we, had, we developed these social engineering tools as kids, this high perception of our environments. We develop these tools as children. And then once we branch off into adulthood, we decide to use these tools in order to commit crimes. So that's that's typically what happens is, and that's one of the big things that I, I, I try to get across to people. We, get a, we have a lot of professional social engineers out there who have never went through anything like that. And they talk about how people are social engineered or what you have to watch out for and things like that. But I'm going to tell you, if you've not really experienced that, if you've not developed a sense of social engineering out of necessity, then you will never be that type of quality person that you're trying to defend people against. That makes a lot of sense. I I, I don't want to necessarily give a plug here, but I've, I've actually been writing a, a book that's about authentic selling and it, everything you touched on there is um, in line with a lot of the things that I believe and talk about, which is that in order to sell effectively and, you know, fraud is another form of selling. If you think about right. it, you're selling somebody on a different persona. Um, it really lies in the authenticity. And to your point, it means that you're not, you know, this person in the hoodie. Uh, you're the person that uh, looks like everybody else. And it's the person that you would least expect. Um you know, there's one other thing you said, Brett, when you were kind of in the opener, I wasn't planning to ask you this, but it, it uh, piqued my attention. So you mentioned, you know, you end up in prison and you escape. And in my mind immediately goes to like the Shawshank Redemption where you're like, <laughs> you know, using like a pencil or something to, to do like a jailbreak or something. But I mean, I, I got to ask you, I mean, how do you escape from prison? I mean, that's that's something that, that I think everybody needs to, to hear. Sure. So the escape from prison and again, nothing to be proud of and not really anything romantic. You had mentioned Shawshank. Typically, when someone asks me how I escaped from prison, I'll give I'll give them that line from Shawshank. Well, you know, I met this guy named Red and he was known to be able to get stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, that's what that's what went into my mind. I assumed that you knew a guy named Red or you had a poster in your in the wall or something. But exactly, anyway. exactly. But it, it was nothing that romantic at all. Uh, my mother leaves my father when I was nine years old. I didn't really see dad for over 20 years at that point. Didn't have a conversation with a man for 20, 25 years until I am being sentenced to prison. And at that point, my father shows up at my sentencing. He stands up in front of the judge and he was like, your honor, I want to make sure Brett gets a good life when he gets out, that he gets a fresh start. He is more than welcome to come and live with me when he gets out. So that's what he says. He starts visiting me in prison. About the third visit in, he looks at me. He's like, you know, I've been reading about you online. I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. He's like, uh, that's a lot of money you made. I'm like, yeah. He's like, um, you think you can teach somebody how to do that? So what happened is, is when I first started telling that, I, I, I didn't tell that to anyone until about a year and a half into my speaking uh, career. When I first started telling it, I, what I said at that point from that story on is I said, you know, I saw that uh, my I thought my dad was back in my life and I chose to uh, 
you know, he, he was just kind of manipulating me. The truth of the matter was almost the exact opposite. I, I think that the truth of the matter is, is that my father hadn't seen me in so long that he was still viewing me through the eyes of my mother, that framework of my mother and that criminal attitude that she had. And I think that that was probably the only way that he thought he could communicate with me. I chose to use that to manipulate the man into helping me escape. So I taught him how to do tax return identity theft. And in return, he dropped me off 4000 in cash, a change of clothes, a cell phone, and a driver's license. I was at a minimum security camp in Ashland, Kentucky. I had a job outside of the fence, which is a story in and of itself. And I was there for about six weeks. He dropped off the packages that I needed, and I took off. I uh, made it about 375 miles away. I was waiting on more driver's licenses and cash and passports to come from some Ukrainian uh, associates of mine. They didn't show up because those Ukrainians were under investigation as well. So meanwhile, the U.S. Marshals, is they're canvassing a three-state area looking for me. They find me. And I get uh, I spent eight months in solitary confinement, and I'm sentenced to another 18 months or 15 months in prison from that point. Yikes. All right. Well, that's yeah, uh, not fun. No, not fun at all. I was going to say I'm probably not going to ask you about how about that, but no, um, you know the thing is, is, is I want people to understand that if all this stuff hadn't happened, and I, I've been a long time coming to this conclusion, if all this stuff hadn't happened, if I hadn't escaped, if I hadn't been caught, if I hadn't served time in a real prison out in Texas, all this other, all these other things. The chances of me being back in prison, probably pretty high. I mean, I, I really think it took all of that stuff, all those trials and travails to really get me to the point where I understood that, hey, you know, the only person you're hurting, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting everyone else. Um, and I, I did have that wake up call. And I'm fortunate enough to have it because I, I certainly would be back in prison for 20 if it wasn't for uh, for the life I've led, for the people who've helped me out and everything else. Absolutely. And I think what you've done... <laughs> Even at the B, I mean, your speaking career and all that is really just launched. I, I what over like the last five years or so? Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, about five, four or five years old right now. And uh, yeah. you know, I get to travel. Except for when COVID nineteen breaks out, I get to travel across the planet <laughs> and yeah. see all these sites, speak to the best people on the planet, and help everyone that I possibly can. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, I think what you've done in the last four or five years alone has more than made up for what you did in the many years before that. But um, one other thing that I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about was something uh, – this is my last question about your story for now, I guess. But something you talked about was when you, you, you found out that you were on the most wanted list. Um, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I was going to call it cool. I mean it's very, you know, kind of a um, – you know, a, a wake up call of sorts. You decided to go to Disney World. Um, I was going to ask you actually about what your thought process was like when you found out about that news. That's obviously big news. You see yourself on TV, your face is right there. We got to find this guy. Um, how did you react? You know, what, what did, what did that make you feel like? Why did you pick up and go to, to Disney World? Um, what was, uh, what was that whole experience like? Sure. So on the escape, and I've never really talked about that, but I was on the run for four months. And what a lot of people don't understand when you're on the escape, when you're on the run, you know, I was paying attention to any type of news that was out talking about not only me, but the groups I was involved in. I was monitoring the groups and everything else to see if there were any blips on the radar concerning me. And there were a few that were out there. You could actually tell who law enforcement was that was looking for information about Brett Johnson. 
it's an extremely, it is an extremely stressful time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I decided I first ran out to Dallas, Texas, and then I, I knew I needed to steal money. I had this in my head that I was going to steal enough money to go down to Brazil and set up shop again. So here I am stealing money, trying to monitor and trying to keep track of where law enforcement is in their chase for me. The stress levels are through the roof to the, it's not only stress, but just extreme depression. So bad. No kidding. Any, any type of ballad that would play on the radio, Brett Johnson would cry like a baby. I mean, just a baby. Had no friends, nothing else. It got to the point. Have you seen Breaking Bad? Have you seen the, the whole series or not? I mean, has anybody not seen Breaking Bad and told all, all right. of their friends about it? <laughs> so, I've, so of course, toward the end of the, okay. So toward the yeah. end of the series, Brian Cranston pays Robert Forster. He's in that cabin, and Brian Cranston pays Robert Forster. I think it's eighteen thousand dollars to talk to him for an hour, just to talk. All right. I was to the point, I was paying escorts just to friggin' talk to me. That was it. I didn't want to have sex. I, I just wanted, I just needed some sort of human interaction to talk because you don't have friends when you're on the run. You don't have friends when you're a criminal to begin with, but, but certainly when the entire United States government is after you, you don't have friends at all. So that was, that, that was that entire lead up that what actually got the, uh, the most wanted. I was doing tax return identity theft. I was stealing about $150,000 a pop on each each one of those runs that I was doing. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada when I ended up on the United States Most Wanted list. I had gotten up at, I think I'd gotten up at 1 a.m. in the morning and had taken, I had, um, I think I was, had like 110 of these uh, prepaid debit cards. And I was feeding them through ATMs, getting the 20s out, throwing them in a backpack. And that took all of about eight hours because that's a lot of 20s. So here I am, I come back to the hotel room and I fire up this website called Carter's Market, which was ran by a gentleman named Max Butler. Max Butler is now in prison. I think he's due out like 2030 or something like that. So I fired up the website that I had previously been an administrator on while I was working for the Secret Service. And the first thread on that website said, Gollum Fun Most Wanted. And I looked at it and it didn't really hit me that it was talking about the federal government wanted me. I thought that maybe it was some of these website people that I just pissed off that were looking for me. So then I click on it, and the first thing I see is my picture, the, the picture that I had taken when I was working for the United States Secret Service. So then it's got a link to, a, to the Secret Service site, and it talks about all about me and the investigation and how they're wanting me. So I'm United States Most Wanted all of a sudden. And I sat there, I make fun of it during the presentations, but I sat there and I was like, oh my God. And um, I knew I couldn't get a passport at that point. I was looking to get a, a legitimate passport, well, a legitimate issued passport, but a fraudulent one, and going down to Brazil. And I knew at that point that that was not going to happen. So I was thinking, okay, I'm in Vegas. Where do I go as far away as possible? I like I like the hot weather, so let's go to either Key West or somewhere through there. Maybe I can hide more in the crowd in Orlando. So I had a Jeep Cherokee, got in the Cherokee, drive all the way to Orlando, uh, buy – actually, I rent a timeshare, pay cash for it for nine months, buy $30,000 worth of furniture because I figure I'm going to be there a while. And uh, I lasted – probably six weeks until the Secret Service came and got me. And they tracked me using a uh, trigger fish or stingray is what they call them now. And what is that exactly? What it, that like, is how a they get you? 
Sure, that's a cell phone spoofer. So it will locate a, any specific cell phone within about a seven foot radius. Uh, back oh, then, wow. it may be even better now, but uh, back then, that's what it, what it did. That's crazy. That back then they had that they had they had that. I mean, that oh, yeah. makes you uh, probably you know, with all the stuff about your data privacy on your cell phone. And, uh, you know, people at home pay attention. You know, people know exactly <laughs> where you are. Um, yeah, there is no privacy. <laughs> no, I can see that now. If back then it was uh, within seven feet, today I would say it's probably. I mean, within seven feet is close enough anyway. So, um, but you talked about. And, uh, you know, I feel like every time you you know, speak, I have like three new questions. So you, you talked about something, uh, that that's interesting was like the, the, the tax fraud. I remember you came and talked to all of us at next caller a few years ago. I wasn't there. I was out that day. I was, I was okay. pretty upset with the, the schedulers of that event that they scheduled it on a day that I wasn't around. But, um, the, uh, there was, uh, you talked about filling out like fake tax returns as a type of fraud vector. And I remember telling somebody this story and they said that like, you almost deserved that money because filing a tax return was such a pain in the ass to begin with, that if you were willing to file on behalf of somebody else that you deserved their tax return, which I thought was funny. Um, but can you talk like walk us through what is that like? What is the tax fraud like? Um, you know, tax season I guess just ended, so this is maybe a good time for people to think about next year and how to protect themselves. So maybe it's a dual question. Like from a fraud perspective, how do you actually perpetrate that crime? And then as a consumer, how do you make sure that you're not a victim to that crime? Sure. So what you have to realize is that information is really the only thing of value anymore. It's what you can do with the information. So back then I was getting Databases. So the first PII database that I had was the Indiana State Sex Offenders Registry. And I used that. I was the first fraudulent seller of bank accounts. So I could set up bank accounts in other people's names and I would sell those as products for other criminals to use to launder money through. Um, so that's where I started. And I figured that, hey, it's a sex offenders. No one cares if they're victimized because they're predators to begin with. So that's where I started. The next database I had was the Texas driver's license database, which tends to still be accessible by some today. And then finally, I happened upon the California State Death Index, which everyone back then loved it. The California Death Index, what it does is it shows the, the dead person's name, the mother's maiden, the date of birth, date of death, and the social security number. Now, what I knew was through reading and everything else, guys, criminals say this one thing about criminals, especially cyber criminals. We are extremely good about researching everything we need to. We read we're the only people who read terms of service. We read indictments, we read news articles, everything else to gain as much knowledge as we can. We read white papers to see what the good guys are trying to do to defeat us. So we do a lot of research. And some of the research that I did had clued me into the fact that before 1998, the only way the United States government, the federal government, knew that someone had died was if their family had filed for a Social Security death benefit. So it took the family to file for that. The benefit was only like 280 bucks or something like that. As a result, very few families had ever filed for that social security benefit, meaning that the United States government, the federal government, did not know that a lot of dead, a lot of people who had died were actually dead. They were just, you know, still around as far as U.S. government was concerned. So my initial idea was, you know, I wonder if someone can file for social security benefits on these people. So you take a child that was, you know, born in 1950 and, you know, now he's reaching 65, what have you. He's able to, if he were alive, he could 
claim Social Security benefits. I wonder if I could do that. Well, it turns out you couldn't because the number had been dormant for so long, the Social Security Administration wanted you to come in for an interview. So the next idea I had, and it was based on a an old 60 Minutes episode talking about tax fraud. I was like, you know, I wonder if I can use this information to file fraudulent tax returns. Well, it turns out you can. So I started doing that. And I got to the point where I could file a tax return manually, one every six minutes. I would do that from Sunday through Wednesday. Thursday, I would take a road trip. Friday and Saturday, I would ca- the road trip would map out a, a map of ATMs. Friday and Saturday, I would cash out. I would fit, uh, I'd take a Jansport backpack with me. A Jansport backpack will fit properly packed $150,000 in 20s. So I'd put up stuff, 150K in 20s in a backpack, come back home to Charleston, South Carolina. I had a spare bedroom. I'd open the door. I'd chuck the backpack in there. Then one day you open the door and you're like, got to do something about all those backpacks. <laughs> and that's when you find out how to launder money. So that's where it starts. What's interesting You talk about how to protect yourself. Now, a lot of people know the tax return fraud and everything else. There's been a lot of news about that. But there's a lot of similarities between that tax return identity theft and what we're seeing right now with COVID fraud. You know, you've got the Paycheck Protection Program. You've got the unemployment fraud. You've got the EIDL. You've got all these different government programs, which basically right now – I mean, they've shored up some security, but they're pretty much wide open for any criminals that want to walk in and take advantage. So how do you protect yourself? It's with the tax fraud. You just have to make sure that you file before anyone else does for the unemployment fraud. The problem with that is, you know, we've got 40 million Americans out of work over 40 million right now. If someone files your unemployment. So, and the problem is, is that they can file unemployment on you even while you're still working. If someone does that and then you're furloughed from your job or you lose your job, you're not going to get your unemployment because these, these state offices, most of them aren't even manned right now because of COVID-19. They don't have the manpower to, to track down where the pay- payment's supposed to go or to and they don't have the incentive to try to fix things for you either. So that there's a huge issue with that. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot through a lot of different channels, but really right now with COVID-19, with the race riots, with the election, everything else, it is a perfect storm. I have never seen anything like it in my entire life. And I've been, a, I was a lifetime criminal, but I've never seen anything like it in my entire life that is more perfect for fraudsters to go in and try to victimize people across every single vertical you could possibly imagine. Uh, we echo that uh, completely. We, we, uh, we've been putting out research since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, as you know, Brett, we're monitoring call traffic for major financial institutions, and we've seen dramatic spikes in what we believe would be fraudulent activity that we could actually tie specifically to um, impending events. Um, So for example, like the PPP loans um, was a good example. I think we saw more phone calls on the date that those were, um, those were issued in the, um, the, uh, the, the, the stimulus checks actually, sorry, it was the date, I think it was like April 15th that the stimulus checks were received by people. And we, you know, we got, saw all sorts of traffic um, that was coming in, but you know, to stay on the topic of COVID, uh, these programs, so you mentioned unemployment, we talked about tax fraud. 
Um, some of these other programs, like the PPP loans, um, even like the stimulus checks, are rife with fraud as well, right? I mean, there's people. I think I forget the statistic. Sam was telling it to me, but there's some statistic about um, people that were collecting uh, these stimulus checks for dead people. Like there was like billions of dollars for stimulus checks that went to dead people. Can you talk a little bit about like if you were a fraudster today and you turn on the TV and you hear that they're doing these loans and these stimulus checks, what do you, what's the first thing you're going to do? Okay. So what you have to understand on cybercrime, and I, I talk about this a lot, there are basically three necessities. And what I'm going to talk about is this idea of desperation. Okay. Historically on cybercrime, if you're a cyber criminal or a criminal at large, there are three different aspects to your specific type of crime. It's gathering the data, it's committing that specific crime, and then it's finally putting cash in pocket. So gathering data could be, you know, stealing bank account information, stealing PII, like social security numbers, dates of birth, things like that. Committing the crime is filing for the stimulus checks, unemployment fraud, paycheck protection. And then finally figuring out how am I going to take that direct deposit that's coming in and actually convert that to cash and put it in my pocket. So, all three of those avenues historically have been rife with some form of desperation. So a criminal steals information. He gathers that data. He's in a rush to use that data as much as as fast as he possibly can before the potential victim, before that victim finds out that they're about to lose money or be compromised. Okay. Committing the crime, he's he's desperate to get the crime done and complete as fast as he possibly can. And then finally, he needs to get that money out as fast as he can before the bank freezes the account as they're wont to do many times. The interesting thing, so so criminals have been desperate their entire careers. That sense of desperation has been there. Okay. While the good guys, eh, maybe not so much. These days, though, because of COVID, because of everything that's going on in the world right now, we've seen an, a complete 180 with that sense of desperation. Now criminals are not desperate. Now criminals are calm, cool, collected, calculating. They take their time because there are so many victims out there. There are so many avenues to commit fraud that they don't have to be desperate. And that's one of the things I used to te- try to teach people is never act out of desperation. Meanwhile, the good guys, the government is desperate to get money out to people. The unemployed people are desperate to get money, to feed their family, their, 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 to support their families and everything else. So, so there's this retail merchants are desperate to stay in business. Every single vertical you can imagine out there is rife with some sort of desperation that's going on. And desperation always leads to bad choices. Okay, so when you're when you've got an environment like that, that is really the most dangerous thing you could possibly imagine. Okay, because all of a sudden, it's no longer an idea. It used to be criminals had to go, had to figure out, okay, how can I make money? You don't really have to figure that out anymore. Like for the government, for example, they were so desperate to get money out, they knew people needed it. They were so desperate to get the stimulus checks out, to open up the paycheck protection program, everything else, that. They didn't really put any security in place. In order to get the stimulus check, literally the only thing you needed was a social security number, name, and a date of birth. And they, as long as you just went to that website and filled it in, you got that sec- check sent to you or that direct deposit sent to you, whether it was yours or not. Same thing for unemployment fraud. No one really understood. And all of a sudden, they're hit with these millions of numbers a week, 
No one was prepared for that. They're overrun. Their system is overrun. There's not really any real security in place. I mean, none. There were no verification processes in place at all at that point in time until a bunch of Nigerians literally steal $1 billion from the Washington state unemployment uh, system. Then it goes like wildfire across the other 49 states. Okay, so this sense of desperation leads us to bad choices. And that's that's what we're seeing. Like right now, retail merchants out there, retail merchants experienced a 16.7 decrease in retail sales. The largest estimate was 12.3. They beat the hell out of that. So they experienced 16.7 decrease. The result, the result was, is that many merchants told their fraud teams, they were like, hey, lower the fraud flags. We just need to make these sales. So that means for a fraudster, for a credit card fraudster, that means that I can use stolen credit card details and an order that would not have went through back in December or January because those fraud flags have been lowered. It'll go through now. I can ship to alternate addresses. I can buy higher dollar items, more questionable goods and everything else. And it goes through. And those that sense of desperation has really went like wildfire across every vertical, every single one. And we're going to continue to see that this thing is not over yet. No, that's that's super enlightening. I had never really thought about that dichotomy between the fraudster and like the quote unquote good guy and how the tables have turned and as you put it, that the thresholds have been lowered as a result of the desperation that the quote unquote good guys are facing. That's, that's super interesting. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, Brett, uh, into Mm -hmm. the call center landscape, because as you know, that's where we, that's where we live in the call center world. And, you know, it's no secret that from a social engineering perspective that the call center is the fraudster's dream because it's really the one channel where you're interacting with another human being. So this is a place where you can really put your charm uh, to work. And, you know, I think uh, people that are listening can probably see that you're, you're the type of guy who um, has that, you know, type of personality that would work well, presumably, you know, on, on, on a, on a telephone call. So, Talk us through where the call center fits into this plot. Why does it work best? Where does it fit in the overall fraud process? I'd also like to ask. So I'm sorry, I'm asking you like multiple questions here. But like, <laughs> what are and like even as you talk about that, like what is a a good scenario to encounter when you pick up the phone? Like when you when somebody answers and you're talking and you know, oh, this is great. Like I'm going to be able to succeed here versus uh, a really bad scenario where you kind of think to yourself, oh man, like I really, they, they've got the right controls in place. I'm going to have to try again later. Um, can you talk us through all of that? And then I guess at the end, uh, sorry, if you don't remember all this, I can remind you, but at the end, I'd love to also hear, like what do, what, what do businesses do you know, to protect themselves in the call center in light of everything that you're about to share. Sure. So the call center, let's let's talk about the telephone for a second, okay? So a brand new fraudster, and most fraudsters these days are brand new because the numbers keep exploding of new entrants coming in trying to commit crime, okay? Uh, to give you an idea, when I was arrested, the group that I ran was called Shadow Crew. It was the first organized cybercrime community. We ended with 4,000 members. Alpha Bay in 2017 
ends with 240,000 members, only just one website. And there were many across the the spectrum at that point. Uh, Last year, another criminal website, and again, there are many of these websites these days, not just one like with Shadow Crew, but dozens. One website gets shut down last year, 1.15 million members. So these numbers continue to explode, mostly with new blood that's coming in because of the ease of committing crime online. What you realize, have to realize is, is that these new people, they, they find security in being distanced from their victims, of not having to talk to their victims or be face-to-face with their victims or anything else, whether that victim be a person, a government agency, a retail merchant, what have you. That distance provides security for a fraudster or for a criminal. They feel more comfortable like that. Because of that lack of confidence, a new criminal will tend not to pick up a phone. Okay. They, they, they are just scared to death of that, whether it be some, and usually it's, it's a fear that's not really justified. They're afraid they're going to start stuttering and they might, or they're afraid they'll fall apart. And sometimes they might, they're sometimes afraid that maybe the person will, you know, they've got some sort of software on the merchant's side that they'll recognize the voice coming in, or they'll be able to trace the phone number down, or maybe they'll somehow be able to reach through the phone and grab them and arrest them. So there's all these types of ideas that go through these new guys' heads that keeps them, that keeps the confidence, you know, they don't have the confidence yet to pick up the phone and use it to call customer service. Only later, once that confidence level has been built up high enough, does a fraudster pick up the phone and call into customer service. When that's done, at that point, the fraudster understands exactly how valuable the call center is to commit fraud. Once you do that, that call center then becomes a go-to tool for anything that you need. So you're you're hitting a, a clothing merchant. If you go online, maybe you're only able to get $500 worth of product out of a stolen credit card. But if you pick up the phone and call, all of a sudden that number gets boosted to $1,500. Maybe you're trying to order a laptop or something like that. You pick up the phone, all of a sudden that order will go through because you're able to talk to the customer service agent and get all those fraud flags lowered down. You know, it's all they explain why they're shipping it to an alternate address. Same thing for unemployment fraud. A lot of times, and that's what we saw recently, a lot of times unemployment fraud was, I mean, the, the fraud was being, you know, the, the, the people would try to put in fraudulent uh, applications. They were being denied, but you pick up the phone, even if it's just a voice over IP number, you pick up that phone, call the unemployment office. You're going to get hold of somebody. You may have to wait 30 or 40 minutes because everyone else is trying to get benefits, but you pick up the phone and you finally get somebody they approve it immediately right there just by talking to them. So the phone plays a huge part. It's a huge tool for a fraudster to use it. It's something that once a fraudster realizes the value of it, the fraudster will never go back. Now, what do you look for? It really depends on who you're calling and and you have to realize that. So, so say I'm calling a high end merchant that I know that they don't get a lot of sales every day, but for whatever the product is that they've got, I want that specific product. So I know they're not going to be really busy. When I know that, I'm prepared mentally on the criminal side of what I need to do. I need to do some grooming. I need to do some rapport building. Maybe I'll call in two or three times before I decide to actually go ahead with the the actual fraudulent 
order or whatever that is. Okay. So it depends on the call center, the business itself, and it's up to the fraudster to determine that. Okay. Is it, is it someone like Amazon that gets thousands and thousands of calls a day or text messages a day? And you can, you know, hide in those numbers. If, if that's the case, if the call center is that busy, that's wonderful for a fraudster because you can hide in those numbers. Nothing is going to stick out. If the merchant's only getting five, 10 orders a day, but they're high dollar orders at that point, it takes a lot of grooming, a lot of rapport building, a lot of trust leveling or layering in order to get that merchant to the point where they will go ahead and process that order or the unemployment office will go ahead and do that for you. If the unemployment office is overloaded on calls, then that customer service agent is so frazzled, so looking forward to going home, has had so many calls before you, knows he, knows he or she is going to have so many calls after you that you're going to go, fall within the numbers. So it depends on the vertical that, and the, the merchant or the business that you're trying to hit from the fraudster point of view. It's it's You, you look for certain things as well. I mean, how confident does the customer service agent sound on the other end of the line? Are they reading from a script? Because sometimes you can tell. Are they are they just not engaged in the call? Are they just bored to death? Well, if they are, that's good. I'm going to take advantage of you. So it, it, are they well-trained? Sometimes you get a customer service agent and they are the most well-trained person on the planet and that's just your bad day if you're a fraudster. All right. Or they've got, you know, they're looking at all the data that's coming across the line while they're processing the order or talking to you. And, and someone was paying case, attention. You just call back, right? At which case you try to get off the phone, call back and speak to a customer service agent that's not well trained. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's what you're looking for. You're looking because customer service, they have high turnovers. They don't have a lot of time to train their employees. And when that happens, you got to figure that customer service, and I talk about, you know, proper training has to be from the ground all the way up to the top. But even at that point, because you've got high turnovers, because you've got somebody that's fielding, you know, potentially hundreds of calls a day, it's normal. You can't blame customer service for for, for mentally disconnecting, for zoning out a few times. And it's during those times when they zone out that someone like I used to be comes in and just rips you apart all of a sudden. And it doesn't matter. I don't care what the vertical is, financial institutions, government agencies, retail merchants. It happens across all of those verticals. And so how do you how do you stop it? If we put you in charge of a call center, what are you doing on day one, I guess, to try to keep people from perpetrating fraud in the contact center? Well, day one, you have to realize that the customer service agent is the weak link. So you have to have enough background stuff that's happening outside of that customer service agent's purview, the data, the data collection and the the actual security system. That's the backbone of the call center. You have to have that in there that's determining the actions that's going forward, that even that if the customer service agent is mentally disconnected, the security system is not, you know, the security doesn't get tired. Next caller doesn't get tired. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the person that's talking on the phone that gets tired. Hell, a, a fraudster like I used to be, I get tired sometimes, but I know that there's money at the end of the day. So it's, it's all about making sure that even if the customer service agent is lax, that, that, agent being lax or disconnected mentally or what have you, or just tired, will not result in the company or the institution losing money. So it's all about doing that. It's all about properly training the customer service agents because they're not properly trained. They're not. So it's all about training those agents. It's all about allowing them the opportunities 
to take those metal breaks because, I mean, I've done CSA work. I've been a customer service agent when I was in college and everything else. And I'll tell you, it is it is a boiler room. You know, it's one call after another. It's processing whatever you need to process and getting them off the line. And you don't even remember two minutes later who you talk to. You know, it's just mm. done. And, and a lot of the times, customer service agents have a lot of power at their commands. You know, we, when I was there, we could change orders. We could uh, add to orders, take away. We could change shipping addresses, any number of things without any type of oversight whatsoever. So fraudsters realize that, that, that type, those types of tools are still available to customer service agents. And we have to get to the point where there are tools that even though customer service agent may be mentally disconnected, may be tired, may even be somewhat, you know, impl- uh, complicit with whatever crime may be taking place, that the software, the security system behind them does not allow that to happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I guess I'd be remiss if I'm not asking the, the title of our podcast is called Spoofed After All. Can you just explain how spoofing is integral to the the process for fraudsters and oh, we didn't even mention that, did we? No, we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what happens is in the United States, everything is based on KBA, knowledge-based authentication, those security questions, okay? So if I'm looking to take over a bank account, what I will do is I'll go to the dark web. I'll buy someone's bank account information for, you know, 20 bucks. For that, I get the person's name, their address, their bank account, their bank account login, passwords, stuff like that. Now, for me to really milk out that money, uh, because the United States is based on knowledge-based authentication, I need the complete identity profile of that person so I can answer any security questions that the bank may ask me. Okay, so I can I can build that ready made or I can buy it ready made. So I can build it by going to a site like robocheck.cm. I can buy someone's it's a criminal website. I can buy someone's social security number, date of birth for three dollars. So I buy the social security number, date of birth, then I can go to sites like Ben Verified or Spokio and Tellius or maybe TLOXP over at TransUnion. It's a skip tracing program that supplies these in-depth background checks. So I pull the background check on the victim, every single associate of the victim, in the hopes of getting the mother's maiden name, which I will get. All right. From there, it's time to get the credit report. I go to annual credit report. That's the same place everyone else goes. Why do I go there? Because they ask those security questions, but there's no time limit on the questions. So I can literally sit there all day long with the background checks with Google, try to get the answers correct. If I miss the answers, that's okay, because then I go over to Credit Karma, where they ask the exact same questions, except the answers, except for the correct answer is different. So now I have the credit report. From there, I go to LinkedIn to find out where you work, Glassdoor to find out how much you make, Facebook to find out if you've posted anything of interest. So that's all before I pick up the phone. Then I pick up the phone. I call the bank. I spoof the phone number of the actual card or account holder. That way, customer service When I call in, customer service sees the phone number that's supposed to be associated with the account that's on file, the phone number that's on file. What that does is that lays a base level of trust with the customer service. The customer service agent immediately says, okay, this is who it's supposed to be. Everything's going to work out just fine. Now, customer service is there to make you happy. They're trained to make everyone happy. It's supposed to be a frictionless experience. Everyone's supposed to be nice, warm, fuzzy by the end of the call. Understanding that the spoofed phone number only provides a base level of trust, but it is a base level of trust that is a necessity. All right. 
if I were to call in and it's not, not the right phone number that's on file, immediately that customer service agent is suspicious. They don't trust anything that else is going to come out of my mouth whatsoever. So I need that spoofed phone number. Okay. So the spoofed phone number lays a base level of trust that is the foundation of the rest of the scam. It is. It is the cornerstone, the foundation of the rest of, the, of what's about to happen. So I call in. I'm going. I'm only going to ask what my available balance is on the card. They're going to ask two security questions. One of those security questions, probably mother's maiden name. Now I got to the point where I would miss mother's maiden name on purpose. I would have the maiden, the real maiden name, but I would say some other name. The reason I would do that is it creates a problem with the with, between me and the customer service agent. Okay, so I say. Johnson. No, sir, that's not what we've got. Well, what have you got? Well, I'm sorry, we're not going to tell you what what we've got. Well, you know, I don't know what you've got, but I damn sure know what my mom's name is. What are you people even doing? What's customer service trained to do at that point in time? They're trained to ask two other security questions, which I have the answers to because I have the credit report and the background checks. I answer those questions correctly, at which point customer service then changes the mother's maiden name to whatever I want them to change it to. Now, that's not the point of the call. Okay, The point of the call is actually as I'm hanging up. As I'm hanging up at that point, oh, by the way, can you update my phone number on file? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Okay, Now, the reason that works, the reason that's important, creating a problem provides a distraction with the customer service agent. So they're no longer paying attention to really what I'm actually calling for. What I'm calling for is to update the phone number on file. Because if I change the phone number to a phone number that I control, I then control the entire account, okay? So I need to distract the customer service agent from that. At the same time, I need to build rapport with that customer service agent. That rapport comes in with me causing a problem. The problem is, is I don't have the right security question. I've got somehow the mother's maiden name is wrong. Okay. So I've created a distraction. I'm building rapport with the customer service agent by figuring out this problem, bullshitting around some at the same time, layering trust by answering even more of these KBA, these security questions at the same time. So I'm proving even more as the call goes on that I am the person that I claim to be. Meanwhile, all of that distracts from the main purpose of the call, which is to change the phone number on file. And when do I change it? I change it after mentally the customer service agent has disconnected from the call. As the customer service agent is about to hang up, they're already looking forward to that next call, at which point I'm like, oh, by the way, can you update that phone number for me? Yes, sir, I can do that. And and how successful is that? It's so successful that I have been asked many times, why are you updating the phone number? And my answer has been, I no longer have that number. I no longer have the number that's showing up on their screen that I'm calling from, but they've already dis- they've already mentally disconnected from it. They're looking forward to the next call. They don't even question it. They just go ahead and say, yes, we can do that. And they change the phone number, at which point I own the account, let it sit for five business days. I can do whatever I want to with it at that point in time. That's completely wild. But uh, makes, you know, it, but it but it makes sense, right? I mean, everything you just described, it, you can see how that that could play out. Um, Brett, I know we're running out of time. I have two quick final questions, if that's cool. Absolutely. Um, 
I have to, I, I wasn't even planning to ask you this, but you talked about Breaking Bad earlier. It got me thinking about crime shows. I'm a, I'm a big Breaking Bad fan. Recently, I watched all of Ozark. When you were talking about oh, money yeah. laundering, I was thinking about Ozark. What's your Ozark's good. They get, it, they get a couple of things wrong, but by God, that's a good show. It is. Well, what's wrong? Well, again, now I got to know what's wrong with Ozark, but also what's your favorite, what's your favorite show? Crime you know, show. So, some of Ozark, uh, some of the money laundering mechanisms are a little far-fetched. But the show, the writing is outstanding. It truly is. I think that Breaking Bad gets everything right with the criminal mindset. It truly does. So my two favorite crime shows, Breaking Bad and The Wire. Absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Just started The Wire. I'm having a little bit of a hard time, you know, keeping on it. But uh, based on your recommendation, I might have to go back and continue. Um, It's good. Idris Elba is outstanding in it. The the writing is good. And you're right. It does take a little bit. It's more of a slow burn than some of these other shows. But it's, it's truly a fascinating show. All right. I'll have to get back into it. My last question, Brett, um, can you expound a little bit like on a closing note, tell people what you're doing today and how do they reach you if they want your help? So what am I doing today? Um, I have recently canceled the online fraudcast. It was another podcast that I had that dealt with strictly with merchant fraud. I'm getting ready to, I, I mentioned before, I'm getting ready to launch this unethical life podcast. We're working on a TV show, a couple of TV shows, as a matter of fact. We're working on that. We'll continue working on the book. Uh, COVID, of course, has has delayed a lot of these productions that are going on. I continue to speak. I'm partnering with AARP to deliver a lot of virtual presentations over the course of the rest of this year to help protect basically the, the most vulnerable of our society, the senior citizens that are out there. So doing that, I continue to work every single day to try to protect people and businesses from the type of person that I used to be. And I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, so we're going to have a YouTube channel that's launching in the near future. If you're looking to contact me, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can reach out to me on my website at www.anglerfish. That's A-N-G-L-E-R-P as in Paul, H-I-S-H, anglerfish.com, where you can find me there. Awesome, Brett. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to everybody who listened to another episode of Spoofed. Brett, I'll stay on and chat with you. um, But to everybody else, hope you have a great week. And we'll see you for the next episode soon. 